0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Norman Solomon, co founder of RootsAction.org, who talks about the need for progressive activists. To push the incoming Biden administration to adopt popular policy proposals on universal health care, income inequality, climate change, and much more. Stephen Hassan, a mental health professional and author of the book, The Cult of Trump, who assesses the threat of violence carried out by President Trump's fanatical supporters if he should lose the November 3rd election. And Aaron Boggs of Open Communities Alliance who discusses a lawsuit filed against a new Trump Department of Housing and Urban Development rule, which guts fair housing discrimination protections. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: In early October, Mali's opposition leader Sumayala Sissa and a 75-year-old French woman Sophie Petrona were released from captivity by jihadist groups in northern Mali. In exchange, 200 jihadi fighters were set free, beginning a new chapter in the conflict-driven Sahel. Maktur Wan, who was appointed Mali's interim prime minister last month to manage an 18-month transition after an August 18th coup, said that his government was prepared to pursue talks with armed jihadist groups to help end a years-long conflict that has killed thousands of people, a position in conflict with France's foreign minister who rejects the idea. It is hoped that CIS's return and promised reforms to the Constitution and electoral system will lend more legitimacy to any future election. The bloodshed began in 2012 as a separatist movement in the North, but soon devolved into a multitude of armed groups jockeying for control and rendering vast swaths of the country ungovernable. The escalating violence has spilled into neighboring Burkina Faso and Niger, with groups linked to ISIS and al-Qaeda exploiting the poverty of marginalized communities and inflaming tensions between ethnic groups. The Supreme Court ruled in 2010 that juvenile life without parole is an unconstitutional sentence for crimes other than homicide. In 2012, in the case Miller v. Alabama, the court prohibited juvenile life without parole as a mandatory minimum sentence for any crime, but did not ban it outright. Finally, in 2016, the Montgomery v. Louisiana case made the Miller decision retroactive, ruling that people must be given the opportunity to show their crime did not reflect irreparable corruption, and if it did not, their hope for some years of life outside prison walls must be restored. Despite these rulings, of the more than 2,800 people sentenced to life without parole as juveniles in the United States, approximately 2,150 remain in prison. But the court left it up to the individual states on how they would implement the rulings. Some states automatically granted parole eligibility to anyone with a juvenile life sentence after a certain number of years served, while others arranged individual resentencing hearings. And some states withheld resentencing opportunities in cases in which a life sentence was not given as a mandatory minimum. Today, 700 inmates are awaiting a resentencing opportunity, while 1,450 people have been granted reduced sentences but remain in prison. A 2015 study found black children were twice as likely as whites to be sentenced to juvenile life without parole for the same crime. People of color account for 80% of juvenile life sentences in Pennsylvania, 73% in Michigan, and 81% in Louisiana. In the early days of Facebook, there were few rules on moderating content with really no guidelines other than take it down if it gives you a bad feeling in your gut. Those days are long gone, with a platform now home to reactionary politicians and white supremacists posting racist rants, Russian trolls infiltrating groups, and Facebook data-mining millions of unsuspecting users. According to The New Yorker magazine, Facebook has over 500 people in their public relations department insisting that the social media platform is a fun place for sharing baby photos rather than a safe space for disseminating hate speech, disinformation, and extremist violent propaganda. Facebook has shielded content from Britain First, a white nationalist political party with two million followers, whose members wear paramilitary uniforms and invade mosques. Brazil's extreme right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, regularly uses Facebook to spread racist attacks against his nation's indigenous population, many of whose leaders have been murdered. Since August, Facebook moderators have been given the power to restrict the activities of organizations and movements that pose a risk to public safety. However, in practice, pages which have sizable numbers of followers or political clout have been shielded by Facebook moderators because their removal might interrupt a meaningful flow of revenue. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: Tension and emotions ran high as the nation prepared for an election day unlike any other in modern American history. President Trump and the Republican Party, sensing that they were headed for defeat in the presidential election and maintaining control of the U.S. Senate, pulled out all the stops to make it more difficult for citizens to vote in the midst of the deadly coronavirus pandemic that has thus far killed more than 230,000 Americans the largest death toll in any country in the world. Through voter suppression tactics, disinformation, and aggressive litigation, the Trump regime and the GOP attempted to block people from casting their vote, invalidate large numbers of mail-in or absentee ballots, and to recruit retired military veterans, off-duty police officers, and armed right-wing extremist groups to intimidate Biden supporters at polling places. Despite these tactics and the president's many threats to resist any election result, unless he won, the nation appears to have rejected Mr. Trump in his attempts to undermine democratic constitutional norms and the imposition of his radical authoritarian agenda. Your reporter spoke with Norman Solomon, co-founder of RootsAction.org, who talks about the urgent need for progressive activists to forcefully push the incoming Biden administration to adopt popular policy proposals on universal health care, income inequality, climate change, and much more.
2: After voting Trump out, we must challenge a Biden administration from day one, and that means that we resist first before the election uh, the canard, the misconception that it doesn't much matter who wins the presidency. It matters a huge amount. All you just have to do is look at who's on the Supreme Court now and which party appointed those justices to the high court. And the other fallacy that we must challenge is the idea that if a Democrat's in the White House, that person shouldn't be challenged by progressives. There are wide ranges of issues that must be confronted by grassroots activists and the broader progressive communities. And that includes healthcare, education, housing, climate, uh, militarism, And if we're lucky through the work and efforts of so many people to defeat Donald Trump, then we have the imperative to directly challenge Joe Biden as president on all of those issues and more and to organize effectively. And actually I was thinking about this today, Scott, that in a way there are bookend misconceptions that you can find among some folks on the left and and liberals, Uh, one misconception is, well, you know, Trump is bad. Uh, Biden is bad. So it's not a big deal who's elected. I, I think that's just um, out of touch with reality. As I said, the Supreme Court is a case in point in terms of who gets appointed and on climate and so many other issues. We're being gaslighted by the few on the left who claim that it doesn't matter whether it's Biden or Trump. The other bookend, though, is the strong tendency among many folks who might identify as liberal or progressive, once there's a Democrat in the White House, they sort of put their feet up and they trust that president. And that was a terrible dynamic during the eight years of the Obama presidency, where Obama brought in so many people from Wall Street into his cabinet. Uh, He launched as many drone strikes and bombings as President George W. Bush had during his eight years. He was not willing to fight for uh, the low-income people of this country, and disproportionately, of course, people of color. The approach to the climate was certainly inadequate. We could go on and on, in which case, and certainly on immigration, massive deportations from the Obama administration. So that's the other part of the uh, set of bookends, I think, where we need to learn from that history. And we have the opportunity, and I think the left is much stronger than it was in 2009 when Obama took office. We've got a strong progressive left, online, offline, in communities across this country. And now we have an opportunity. It's sort of step two of step one. First is it's necessary but insufficient to defeat Trump. And then step two, we've got to have a huge grassroots movement for a Green New Deal, for Medicare for All, For a real challenge to the climate emergency that's ongoing, to challenge the militarism, what Dr. Martin Luther King called the Madison militarism. That also is what must be done and can be done first after we defeat Trump.
0: Norman, I did want to ask you this. In terms of tactics and strategy to move the Biden administration to the left, if he should win office this November 3rd, What are some of the most effective ways in which activists can get involved in doing all they can to make sure progressive policies are adopted?
2: Well, community organizing is so important, and and protests and public education. The Black Lives Matter movement uh, has been a great example. Uh, The Sunrise Movement on climate, 350.org. And then the electoral component. I believe that, beginning in early 2021, we should identify members of the House and Senate, including many Democrats who claim to be progressive, and really examine their records. And one of the most effective ways to lobby them is to develop primary challenges to prevent their reelection. And maybe it'll be successful, maybe it won't. But the very action of organizing to primary Democrats in the House of Representatives who claim to be progressive and don't vote that way, can really light a fire under them and change the dynamic. So I really encourage progressives, wherever we live, look into the record of your member of the U.S. House of Representatives. If it isn't appropriate, if it isn't acceptable, there's no time like the present to begin to reach out, to do publicity, to organize and find an alternative candidate and get serious about it. That's how we're going to make change in the electoral arena.
0: That was Norman Solomon, co-founder of RootsAction.org and founding director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. Find more analysis and commentary on the 2020 election results and how progressive groups are organizing for the post-Trump era by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In his four years as president, Donald Trump's average approval rating was 41%, the lowest of any of the 13 presidents since World War II, according to Gallup. Despite the fact that a majority of Americans reject Mr. Trump's leadership and many of his policies, the president retains a seemingly immovable core of support. This, despite Mr. Trump making more than 20,000 false and misleading statements since taking office in January 2017, congressional impeachment investigations that confirmed evidence of constitutional violations, numerous corruption charges, and 26 women who've made allegations of sexual misconduct. Perhaps the most damning of all charges against the president comes from a recent Columbia University study, which found that upwards of 130,000 coronavirus deaths of the 230,000 Americans who've died were avoidable if President Trump and his administration had acted sooner and implemented widespread public health precautions. As the president faced the voters, he continued to disparage and blame the media for both his own and the nation's problems, labeling stories he objected to as fake news while calling journalists enemies of the people. Your reporter spoke with Stephen Hassan, a cult survivor, mental health professional, and director of the Freedom of Mind Resource Center. Author of the book, The Cult of Trump, a leading cult expert explains how the president uses mind control. Here, Haston assesses the threat of violence carried out by President Trump's fanatical supporters if he should lose the November 3rd election.
3: The bottom line is they've been groomed to believe that if Trump doesn't win, it's because the cheating on the other side. And so they're already of that belief. Uh, oh, yeah. In other words, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, they, they've rigged it, et cetera. And unfortunately, I've been listening to Trump incite violence for years. I want to remind people of his statement way back years ago where he said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and my followers would still follow me. For any mental health professional especially – When somebody talks about shooting somebody and wanting people to blindly follow them, that shows a very sick mind.
0: But let's look at some of the violence that has transpired, some of it encouraged by Donald Trump himself. Are there certain groups out there, militia groups, vigilantes, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, folks like that, who will be encouraged to commit violence, targeting Democrats or anybody they see as an opponent of Donald Trump? Is that something that you think will play out, or is there some kind of breaking system that will mitigate that kind of disaster for the country?
3: I honestly don't know. We're in in uncharted territories, but experts that I've spoken with fear actual violence and all those assault rifles that All of us in the United States are like, why do people need assault rifles? They're not for hunting deer. And then if you listen to Alex Jones and his Impo wars, he's been inciting civil war for a really long time. So I worry. But then I go back to there are a lot more fine patriots who think that's wrong. And I'm hoping that they're going to be reaching out to whoever they know who may have arms or whatever and just say, you know, we're all Americans and violence is not the answer.
0: Steve, I wanted to get your view into the period of time between the election and the inauguration of a new president. If Donald Trump should lose this election, what are some of your big concerns about the levers of power that Donald Trump will still control during this couple of month period?
3: Again, I don't want to be negative and depress people, but it it seems like he would appoint more federal judges. It seems like he will do more uh, deals that are going to benefit billionaire friends of his at the expense of the public. You know, I wrote in The Cult of Trump about a PSYOPs program fourth-generation PSYOPs program that's aimed at convincing people not to trust institutions or experts or science, and I'm afraid that that is what's been happening. I mean, if you think about how could anyone appoint someone to be head of the EPA who doesn't believe in the EPA, or someone to be head of education who doesn't believe in public education? So the the notion of fourth-generation warfare being waged on the American people for four years suggests that in his remaining months, he's going to do more of this to destabilize the U.S. and to make people so desperate that there may be violence and and perhaps a, a desperate effort to declare martial law so he stays in power. So, again, I come back to it's going to take everybody really being tuned into their conscience, to their common sense, to their sense of patriotism, to their sense of love and spirituality, to um, rise up in a nonviolent way and reach out to people of all kinds and all – political parties and I'm especially heartened by Republicans who said I can't support Trump with a number of former cult member friends of mine we're doing a hashtag movement called I got out on um, the vein of the Me Too movements I got out to try to open a large um, pathway for Trump supporters QAnon believers to exit that totalistic authoritarian belief system and and involvement and realize that they they got cons. They were deceived and mind-controlled and that there's life after cult.
0: That was Stephen Hassan, author of the book The Cult of Trump. A leading cult expert explains how the president uses mind control. Learn more about the danger posed by Donald Trump and his fanatical followers by visiting our Between the Lines website, at btlonline.org. One of President Trump's most repeated talking points in the closing days of his campaign is that he's saving the suburbs from incursions of undesirables, a transparent reference to low-income people of color, and in return, Trump's begging suburban women, whom he assumes are all white, to please like him. What Trump says he's saving them from is low-income housing and the possibility that families living in urban areas could use their federal Section 8 vouchers to move into majority-white neighborhoods with higher incomes and better schools. A coalition of state and national civil rights groups filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in federal court on October 22nd, claiming that a new Trump administration rule will make it much more difficult to challenge unfair housing practices in Connecticut and Rhode Island. The rule went into effect on October 26th. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Aaron Boggs, Executive Director of Open Communities Alliance in Connecticut, which is one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against Trump's Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. The lawsuit charges that the new Trump rule will make it much harder to overturn laws and policies that seem race-neutral, but have a disparate impact on historically disadvantaged populations.
4: Open Communities Alliance is focused on the fact that Connecticut is one of the most segregated states in the country, and that's racially, ethnically, and economically segregated. And that level of segregation has all kinds of effects for racial disparity in, in many different arenas. So it can uh, run from educational segregation, disparities in health outcomes, disparities in interaction with the criminal justice system uh, and on and on. So we're focused both on creating uh, access to opportunities and housing that have been off limits for many black and Latino families in particular, uh, and also supporting investments in communities that have been disinvested for generations. Your lawsuit talks about the damage that accrues to injured parties from disparate impact. Can you explain what that means? You know, the notion of disparate impact, this is the idea that there are things that that are beyond just intentional efforts to discriminate that need the protections of the Fair Housing Act. And those uh, kinds of actions are actions that, uh, you know, really come into into forms. One is where you see statistically significant negative impact on one particular group, and the kind of work that we're doing is really focused on when that negative impact is on lower-income Black and Latino families. Um, Or two, when a policy perpetuates segregation. So putting aside the negative impact, just the very uh, notion that uh, those lines of segregation are continued and hardened is a problem under the current law. Uh, The rule would have changed both of those things, made it very hard to prove that there's a disparate impact and really offered no way at all to make claims uh, based on perpetuation of segregation. And our underlying uh, claim here, the way that we became part of this effort was because we had a administrative claim before HUD which asserted that the state of Connecticut had a law that both had a disparate impact and and perpetuated segregation. And that law uh, is a law that says that all housing authorities in the state can only operate within their own towns. Uh, and when you have the largest housing authorities in the state established in towns with, large populations of color and high levels of poverty, and then restrict them only to working within their own town borders, you perpetuate segregation and you have a disparate impact on black and Latino families. And so that's the underlying cause of action or the underlying complaint for us. It's just an administrative effort. And we filed that and the the old rules were in effect. And then while our complaint was pending, the Trump administration tried to put these new rules into effect, changing the, the rules of the game in the middle of the game. So we had standing to assert that this was counter to the fair housing law, arbitrary and capricious and, and a real problem for the issue that we were raising. Aaron Boggs, housing discrimination, despite the Fair Housing Act, occurs all over the country. What difference do you think a Joe Biden presidency would have as opposed to four more years of Trump? You know, we've seen how President Trump has made the notion of integration a boogeyman across suburbs in the country or has tried. And based on my conversations with people around Connecticut over the last 20 years, and especially over the last six months, there is a greater understanding that we can do the right thing on integration and affordable housing and still have strong, sustainable, wonderful suburban communities, and there's a recognition that what the Trump administration is doing is creating a false fear, and and I'm hoping that people just don't fall for that. You know, if Biden wins the presidency, we'll be in an excellent position to have, uh, you know, either the original rule, uh, for the, the pre-Trump rule, back in place, or who knows, maybe even something better than that.
0: That was Aaron Boggs, Executive Director of Open Communities Alliance in Connecticut. Learn more about the discrimination lawsuit against Trump's Department of Housing and Urban Development by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in the MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, KSER in Everett, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Ta. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.